What's up? My name is Dwayne Jones. I'm an artist and a designer and the founder of a lifestyle brand called Art Pays Me. And I love talking to people who are driven to create and make the world a better place with their work. Welcome to a special six-part series of Art Pays Me called Craft Pays Me, where I'll be talking to six craftspeople who represent a cross-section of mediums and stages in their careers. I want to give a special thank you to Julie Roswell and Craft Nova Scotia for making this possible. We'll hear from Julie at the beginning of each episode in the series. And I also want to give a thank you to Arts Nova Scotia for their additional support in this project. Let's get into it. Hi, Dwayne. Here we are again. Uh, we're on episode number four. Um, yes. We're filling, we're, we're taping them sort of uh, one right after the other, but uh, I guess we're, yeah, this is number four of six. So I'm yep. very excited. Yesterday was number three, which was a little challenging. I ended up having to get inside of a, an antique vehicle in order to, uh, to soundproof myself for, for my intro. But, uh, well, thank, you, thank you for your patience in that case. And uh, it's always about being creative, I guess, even when it comes to things like this. So um, I'm Julie Roswell, Program Director with Craft Nova Scotia, and we are on part four of our six-part series of Craft Pays Me with Dwayne of Art Pays Me. Uh, so today we're going to meet uh, Frances Dorsey, who is actually a member of the Craft Nova Scotia board. Uh, she sits on our standards committee as chair. Um, so that's sort of uh, my main interaction uh, with Frances, but I know she also uh, does a lot of exhibitions. She's a former educator. Um, she also uh, has been in our shop uh, previously when it was a, a bricks and mortar shop, the designer craft shop, which now unfortunately uh, is no longer open, but we just uh, launched our uh, our online shop in December. Um, so Craft Nova Scotia is a registered nonprofit in the province, uh, as I said, and we figured out yesterday that it's actually 48 years old, not 40 years old. Um, and we work with craftspeople in all different ways from the Center for Craft, where we have studios and galleries and mentorships and residencies to professional development, our online shop, uh, lots of online content at Craft Nova Scotia on all social media. Um, so we hope people check it out uh, and keep an eye out for us and all of our craftspeople who do beautiful work. Uh, and I'll let you uh, take it away with Francis. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. Okay. Thanks. See you later. Okay. Thank you. So, Francis, uh, nice to finally connect. So, yeah, we talked a little bit before we started recording and myself being a NASCAD alum, I heard uh, your name come up quite a bit as, as someone who was was there and, and touched a, a lot of students' lives. So um, yeah, just a pleasure to, to, to get to connect. So you're, you're, would you describe yourself as a fiber artist? How, how would you describe yourself? I actually just say that I'm an artist. I, I you know, okay. me saying that you're a fiber artist or a paint artist or a marble carving artist seems, uh, it smacks a little bit of, he's not a real moto, he's just a quasi moto. You know, okay. it, it 
So if you have to sort of parenthetically, you know, I guess I don't think, to me personally, the material that I use is important, but I don't think that's necessarily the defining characteristic of anybody's body of work. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I sort of have trouble with those designations. I'm not sure what I think, but I, I try to avoid them. What, so what would you consider to be a, um, what sort of defines a person's work? Um, I think a level of skill, um, uh, some sort of con conceptual driving force that generates the work, um, uh, an intriguing investigation. I think people make work for themselves and it's usually um, because they're looking for something or they're in, in experimenting or investigating or um, wondering about something. And um, if it's, sometimes it's productive research that's interesting to a larger audience. And sometimes it's just purely personally driven. Um, I, I think the quality of the investigation, maybe the quality of the questions and the pursuit of those questions is more what defines work for me than a particular material or some kind of egoistic, um, you know, insertion of self into something. Mm-hmm. Um, um, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that when I said that insertion of self, what, I, what I'm thinking is that um, the, the investigation or the questions reveal that self, but the point of the work is not to present oneself, it's to, and the investigation could be, what are all the things I could do with the color red, or how many different kinds of boxes can I build or draw or paint or um, how many, what kind of illusions could I, um, could I make or, um, you know, it, it might be self-investigatory, but it's the purpose of it isn't to sort of, you know, express yourself, it's, <laughs> it's something else. I, okay, so, in full transparency, whenever I consider reaching out to a gallery or some kind of a group show or something like that, and they ask for the artist statement thing, I always struggle with it. And hearing you say this, I may have to listen to this again, just so that I can sort of process fully what you're saying, because I think it will help me um, better understand what it is that I'm actually trying to do with my work. Because I think that's a, I, I've been listening, I've been on this new app called Clubhouse and there are a lot of artists on there and I talk to a lot of artists in general and a lot of it just gets caught up in, well, I'm just passionate about art, but to me, I'm always like, but what's the other thing? Like, it, it can't just, can it just be art? Is, it, is what's the driving force behind what you're actually trying to do or what you're trying to say? We all make art. We anyone can make art, but what what what's the point? Why do we care? 
about what you're making. Yeah, that's the biggie. I I think when students go to school, I hope that they come out the other end with some sense of what their driving concerns are and some tools that they can use to excavate those concerns. And mm-hmm. um, when I, an interesting, I'm formally, edu- I was initially self-educated and then formally educated. And at my final MFA committee meeting, which happened in the gallery during the exhibition in the school that I went to, um, one of my um, committee advisors said, in some ways, we don't really give a shit what you're doing now. Um, Mm -hmm. We're interested in what you're doing 10 years from now, because it's going to take some time to assimilate and develop your ideas after. Maybe I shouldn't have said that word, but no, I I don't, I don't, yeah, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) I I let it all fly, so I'm good. (laughs) I'm guilty of letting some fly myself on this show, so it's all good. (laughs) Yeah, but I, you know, that idea that it's not what you're doing now, but it's what you're going to do after you take all this on board and process it through your own life and your own ideas and your own experiments. Um, I thought that was really profound in a sort of offhand way. Hmm. Very cool. So you kind of you would understand a lot of. So here's the thing. Sometimes it feels like a divide. There are the self-taught artists, and then there are the um, formally trained. I mean, we're all. I guess we all, in some way, start out as as uh, you know untrained at some point. But um, this there there seems to be different perspectives on what makes a professional artist sometimes or a craftsperson in this case in some cases too uh how do you feel did you do you feel like your formal education added to what you do as a as a creative as an artist absolutely when i when i went off to university i wanted to go to art school but my parents were helping me go to school and they were not going to support that Okay. So I studied, um, I set off to study painting um, in a Bachelor of Arts, you know, with a visual arts major. And um, it was way back in the dark ages of the late 60s and minimalism was what people were thinking about. And although I thought all of that work was interesting, it really didn't say anything to me and it didn't, it seemed kind of arbitrary and um, to my untutored eye, um, self-indulgent and um, I couldn't see the point in it. So I dropped out of school for a year and then I transferred into a different school and majored in art history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gave me, in the end, it gave me a really wonderful liberal arts education and it gave me sort of a position from which to understand um, visual communication in all of its forms. But it was kind of discouraging because it was all men and it was mostly painting and sculpture and architecture. Yeah. And um, so I came out of this, I had my newly minted BA and um, 
I came, I was on my way home. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. So I was on Market Street or one of the big streets. And I walked by this gallery and there were there was an exhibition of Navajo rugs in the window. And it was really hot. So I went inside mostly to cool out, but I also wanted to take a look at these rugs. And I was gobsmacked. They were mm. so incredible and they seemed so meaningful and communicative and they had this incredible tactile quality that you could touch and you could smell and you could handle and um I was just I, I was I stumbled out of the gallery and right next door to it was the bookstore and mm -hmm. on the bookstore, there was one of these rotating metal racks. And right at face level, facing the door, was this paperback book, How to Weave. The, wow, the universe. <laughs> the universe. And it was like $7.99. And I had enough money to buy the book if I walked home instead of taking the streetcar home. So I bought the book. And I took it home. And I just started going through it. And um, I also at that point was just on the verge of moving to Canada with my friends because we were all mad about the war that was going on in Vietnam and we had bought this piece of land far off the electric grid. So Hippies. Hippies. So I went off with my book about how to weave <laughs> and lived for, you know, five years with no running water and no electricity and, you know, just constructing looms mm. and um, I was a I, I, I was I started teaching workshops after I'd been doing this for a while I sort of understood what was happening and I was really longing for a deeper conversation mm. the other people that I moved up with were all graduates of Tyler which is an art school in Philadelphia yes. and um, one was a potter and one was a painter two were painters and one was a, um, a designer and one was a sculptor. And, um, and I was just obsessed with cloth. And um, the more I experimented with trying to learn how to weave, the more questions I realized I had and I just wasn't um, finding an audience for that or finding a, a milieu to really examine some of that stuff. So eventually I went back to school and I went to um, OCA, which it was then OCAD now. And um, then I went on to graduate school mm -hmm. and got an MFA in textiles because by that point I had decided that um, I had tried to make a living making stuff and selling it and also taking commissions. And what I found was that I wasn't that interested in making the kind of stuff that was really marketable. Mm. And I thought if I'm gonna be spending my time doing something that isn't that engaging to me, then um, is there something that I could do that would be more engaging that would separate my making practice from money so that I could just sort of see where the work went without those constraints right. and um, and the most interesting thing that I had done really was teaching and talking to people about their ideas and what what they were doing and um, and I could say try this this might help and um, 
So by the time I, I decided to go to grad school, it was with the intention of getting a teaching job at an art school mm. where I thought um, the conversation and the experience in the environment would sort of support my work, but also kind of disconnect it from needing to make work that was going to be appealing to um, customers. Right. Right, it gives it uh, it it freed you up to to not have that pressure of I have to make something that's going to sell tomorrow or that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could think of all kinds of stuff that I wanted to make, but um, that wasn't in the same category as the stuff that people wanted to buy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been a common thread in the series so far uh, of folks saying, okay. I've got these commercial things that that really sell consistently, and then I've got the uh, this other stuff that I just make because I feel compelled or interested in it in some way, uh, and I I relate too. Uh, so we kind of glossed over it a little bit, but you're you're not from Nova Scotia originally. So uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up all over the place. Um, my dad was a political scientist. Um, so he was an academic, and um, <clears throat> I was born in Alabama and um, grew up in Alabama and Tennessee and Michigan and Vietnam and Brazil and France and Sweden. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's, and, that's a lot of cultural influence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then oh. when I finished university, I moved to Ontario, where okay. I lived um, until the early 90s. And then I moved to Nova Scotia. Um, I got a contract teaching job at NASCAD for a semester. And um, it just felt like the right place to be. So eventually, our family moved to Halifax, and we thought we'd just take a shot at it. And huh. um through incredible luck, I ended up with a um, applying, a job was posted and I applied for it and I got it. Wow. So. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, yeah, I ended up staying in Halifax. I'm from Bermuda originally. And uh, I, I stayed here just completely by luck as well. Actually, I was at NASCAD looking for anything back in the, it was the, before the internet was really big. So I was looking at the bulletin boards and just seeing what jobs were up there. <laughs> Someone had posted a job looking for a designer. I got the job and boom, here I am still still here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think the motto is if a door opens, go through. <laughs> yeah, right, just just kind of follow it. Um, you intentionally run into teaching. Do, do you find that you're learning something from students back when you were doing that? Absolutely. I thought that um, it kept me on my toes intellectually mm. and in all ways um, from, you know, human interactions and, and how do you, how do you be um, what the students need in the moment? Um, and also, because every student is so different and has such different interests, you really have to keep up uh, with work, with, um, you know, current thought in the field. Um, 
you have you have to be fully engaged in order to be a good teacher you have to be fully engaged in your own practice i think as well as aware of what's happening in the outer world so uh, and the other thing is that if if you're teaching ultimately the students come first mm -hmm. and um that becomes a hard balancing act but you've made this sort of moral commitment to this role that you're playing in the society, which is to be the best teacher mm -hmm. you can possibly be. And um, that takes precedence. Mm -hmm. And I think just all of that, um, keep, yeah, keeps you on your toes. But, um, mm -hmm. and, and you learn so much from students. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a two-way street, and um, I, I often think that students learn more from each other, in when they're talking together, you know, out of class and they're working in the studio all night long. They probably get more from those interactions with each other than they do from individual faculty, but if the faculty can set up the environment in which they can blossom and do that, then, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's the atmosphere in the environment that you want is where they challenge and excite and prod and encourage and critique each other honestly and thoughtfully. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the teacher's job is to try to set that up and make that work. I love that. So a couple of things I, I want to dig into that you said there that I, I really uh, connect with is the idea that uh, you become a better teacher by actually having a, a practice yourself, because especially at the university level, um, you can share those experiences with the students and give them real feedback or let them know for real, like what they might have to face in that in the world. Yeah, uh, I like that. Uh, and then also, uh, sometimes when I talk to people about like what it's like doing um, art or design at the university level and what the benefit of it would be, and I think it's just that that you said it's yes, the the faculty are great, and if you don't have um, great instruction, it's it's not it it can go very bad very quickly. But this idea that at that level, at the university level, you're there facilitating something in a way that, yeah, I did feel like I learned so much from my cohort uh, in the honors program. And like, it's like uh, they pushed me to work a little harder when I saw how good they were doing at certain things, or they had some technique that I had never seen before. And the, you know, the, the prof or instructor, they're not always there um, while you're in the studio banging away at something but like that mm. community that you form it helps you even like me 20 years later still talking to people who are in the program with me and we're still supporting each other so uh it's 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 cool how that works out yeah yeah I think that's the sign of you know productive use of your time over that education period <laughs> <laughs> yes yes uh, so, um, for you, you said that, like, it's not necessarily the medium per se for you, but is, are there specific fibers that you prefer to work with over others? 
I I love cloth in all its forms. And okay. I think, um, you know, I, I, but it's about making things. And mm. I, um, I was thinking earlier when I saw your, some of your questions and I was thinking, okay, so what is it that really drives me? And um, when I was eight, and I know because we moved a lot of places, so I know where I, what place I was in when this happened. I was playing with my friend, Bill, and we decided to build boats. And um, his father had a big box of scraps of wood cut in various shapes and nails and hammers, you know, that the kids could bang on. Mm. And so we built these um, shipping, these naval shipping vessels with big superstructures on them and nailed them together. And then we decided that we would test them in the bathtub. So we went to the bathroom, filled up the tub and put our boats in. And we thought maybe they were going to flip over, but they didn't. They floated. And I was standing there looking at my boat floating in the tub and I looked at the tub and the faucet and the drain underneath the sink and the toilet. And I thought, somebody made all that stuff. That was made, that didn't just materialize out of the ether and boom, it's there. Somebody built it. Yeah. And even if a machine squeezed out the metal, somebody made the first one. Mm. And, um, and at that point, I just started making things. And I, I built my mother a pair of slippers out of cardboard and yarn and belt that were, she had to, she couldn't lift her feet off the floor when she walked in them because they would fall off. <laughs> but she, she kindly wore them. And, uh, <laughs> and we had, I had studied, you know, how, coal turns into diamonds and I knew that heat and pressure and time turned coal into diamonds mm -hmm. and we lived in a place um, where there were big um, still big coal fired furnaces and I had this particular piece of coal that I liked that was very pretty and shiny and I liked the shape of it so I decided that I would make a diamond out of it so for a year I slept on it because heat and pressure and warmth and time, huh. we're going to turn that coal into diamond. My parents never said <laughs> geological time is different from eight-year-old time. You know, yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. just, they just said go for it. You know, <laughs> oh, <laughs> <But boy. laughs> I did eventually figure out that. I mean, I couldn't figure out why nobody else had tumbled to this. I mean, why wasn't everybody rich? Right, right, you know, right. Diamonds just dripping out of their pockets, but um, but I think that was the that was the thing about making things. And what I liked about cloth was that structure, that interlaced structure, which seems so primordial and basic, yet which is how so much of our world is assembled. Mm -hmm. And. Um, so I like that cloth structure and I like that it is so ubiquitous and we, I mean, you don't even notice it, right? It's everybody wears it and sleeps in it and, mm -hmm. you know, it surrounds you, but you don't really notice it because it is so present. Mm -hmm. So I like that sort of um, 
ubiquitous and unassuming quality that cloth can have. And mm-hmm. as I became more sort of educated over time, I came to really like it because it's it's such a um, it's so connected with women's work and dismissed and um, all of that kind of stuff. So it becomes a kind of a political tool. And then the whole name, and the other thing that I really liked was in the structure, the color is actually in the material. It's not a surface that you put on top of the material. Yeah. So um, have, and I'm quite interested in color and having it be an intrinsic part of the structure of the whatever it is you're making seemed to me way more truthful to where my heart was than painting, where you're applying a pigment to a support, which is usually cloth, although mm-hmm. we don't talk about that. Yes, um, that's true. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> but yeah. no, yeah, canvas is a type of cloth. Yeah, you know, and paper is a type of fiber too. Uh-huh. So um, so I think that I like that. I like the material qualities. I like the conceptual qualities. Um, I especially like plant-based fibers. So okay. I like linen is probably my favorite because it does everything that, I ask it to and lots of stuff that I don't ask it to. Mm. Um, and I like that um, there's a an unpredictability within the predictability. So I feel like a lot of work is setting up um, accidents that are then going to make you go someplace that you hadn't planned on going. Mm. so you're sort of setting up educated accidents that are going to surprise you and then give you something to work to push off and interact with Mm -hmm. and i i've found and so cloth is good for that because it's not it doesn't necessarily do what you want i mean it's it's quite likely to go off whether you're weaving or whether you're dyeing and printing Mm -hmm. or whether you're building baskets um it often doesn't go the direction that you're thinking it would go. And it's way more interesting when it sort of diverts and then you're, it's like you're working with a renovation instead of building from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And I, I like, I like it when the material and the process has a voice that pushes back against whatever my idea is. I, you know what? I was wondering about that. I was looking at some of your work and I saw you did a series of moons and I was like, they're all circles, but they're all different at the same time. And were you sort of relying on those happy accidents to make it so that they all came out different? Yeah, um, I started working on the moons because we lived in Portuguese Cove and one evening I was looking out the window and the moon was rising so it was sort of it was bisected by the horizon yeah um so there was sky above and water below and then this orb that was crisp in one half and then sort of reflected in the water on the bottom half and it was way too big I mean it was a fluke of the light but I thought the moon was about to crash into the earth. I mean, I had a moment of 
terror and panic that I can't even describe because it was so um, untoward. <laughs> right, right. You know? And then I looked at it again and I thought, come on, get a grip. It's just, you know, <laughs> the light is refracting off the horizon, you know. Yeah, You're yeah, not going to yeah. die in a couple minutes, <laughs> <laughs> along with everything that you hold dear in the universe. But, <laughs> but that I, the idea of the sky and the water and the horizon, which, you know, you can never, it's no place, right? You can never get to the horizon because it's always part of its definition is that you never get to that place to touch it. Mm. Uh, but I thought that the form, the circle bisected by the sky and the water was, um, was so infinite and replete and simple that it said everything I could want to say and I could spend years, which I have, <laughs> just fooling around with that circle in the horizon and mm -hmm. seeing what different things I could do to it until I grew tired of that question. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was setting up accidents of um, not being too sure what was going to happen, but hoping that it would be interesting or at least hoping that it would lead me to something else. I've got a lot of them that didn't work at all. And I'm, you know, I've still got them in my studio waiting for, you know, if I have an idea of something to try, then I've got lots of material to experiment on. I love that you mentioned that because, you know, I, I would love to create more and I don't because half the time I'm upset that it's going to fail and I'll feel like I wasted time. Uh, but there's something to be said about just going through that process and, and um, being okay with it not working out and maybe you can come back to it later. Yeah, and I, you know, you don't usually, <clears throat> when I was teaching, one thing that I really noticed was that if I gave students a project where they had to come up with one solution, they would always come up with the most obvious top of the pile kind of solution. And often it wasn't really that interesting and they didn't really engage. But if they had to come up with 10 solutions or 15 or 20, mm. then they got rid of their quick ideas fast and then they had to really um, you know, commit and reveal mm. themselves. And, and often that eighth or that 12th solution was really fabulous. Right. And, um, and if you're, if you're sort of watching that in your students, then how can you not apply that to yourself? And I, I think you just keep making stuff and some works and some doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But um, if you just stay with the work that you think that's gonna work, it's probably gonna be kind of boring. Right. You know, it, it might've happened, it was more interesting when it was in your imagination and your head and yes, when you yes. actually make it, well, it really all happened in your head. Um, and to me, part one part of making art or craft is that there has to be, for me, there has to be an engagement with the physical substance where um, the, sub, the material that you're working with also has a voice in the process. Mm -hmm. And if you're not entering into that communication, then um, 
maybe it's all totally what's in your head, but for most artists, that's not the most interesting stuff. It's the stuff that surprises them that's more interesting. And that sort of, you know, comes to the art craft question, which I know this is, you know, craft pays me. And to me, um, one differentiation that I make in my head is that um, people who are working with crafts are directly engaging with the material. Mm-hmm. And that the making and the material is what's driving them. And, um, and the material has an equal voice and informs what direction you go. Maybe if you don't like that direction, then either you change the material or you work with it in a different way, but there's a constant exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really value that exchange and the voice of whatever it is I'm working with, pushing it back or leading me on. Um, that seems to be really important to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I okay. think to a lot of makers. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to like relate that to something, but I, you know, I think you said it really well. Uh, and, um, you know, pers- I can just go back to me personally, but, but just, um, just being okay with letting the medium do what it does is... <sighs> scary but but that's where the, the fun is <laughs> at the same <Yeah>. time <laughs> yeah it's so um <laughs> what's that it's pretty interesting what happens yeah 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 exactly and um i i and you're right i do get most excited when that happens and then but then there are other times i feel like ah i did that by accident i wish i did it on purpose but hey you get the you get to the solution how you get there so um so let's talk about plant kingdom yes well plant kingdom is a project that's been underway for it feels like years um it's been postponed several times most recently you know because of covid Mm. um and so plant kingdom is this exhibition that I proposed at the Dalhousie University Art Gallery that would feature the work of a group of artists, including me, um, who work with plants in a fundamental way, whether they're carving wood or weaving with materials or making renderings or drawings or prints of images of plants or eating them or whatever their Mm. engagement is. a a group of artists working with plants um, that would also include the exhibition will also have a film series of, you know, movies like uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Children of the Corn, (laughs) Little Shop of Horrors, plant movies. Um, There are a number of scientists and researchers at Dell who are doing really interesting research into plants and um, a round table discussion of some of that research would be part of it. Um, And also we're um, going to be, we've been given a little piece of land on the Dow campus to turn into a pollinator um, and insect and human friendly garden. 
Okay. So cool. it will be planted with native plants, and um, there will be the pathway that walks through it um, is a Mi'kmaq glyph that says, "Listen to us." Mm. And if you look at it from above, which um, it's, and you can see it from the upper floors of the Killam Library when you look down on it you will be able to see the glyph, listen to us. But when you're down on the ground, it will be more a matter of being a pathway where you walk through the various native plants um, that are, um, you know, that are there. Mm. And a lot of them will have berries and stuff that, you know, people as well as birds can eat. So it's turned into this you know, it's evolved over time from a project that had four or five people till now there's probably 10 or 12 involved. Right. And um, it will start, the garden will be started this spring and the exhibition is in January, 2021, 2022, assuming that we're all vaccinated and going back into art galleries and all of that stuff cool. by then. Cool. So, but yeah, so it feels like a really big project, but it's um, it's starting to feel much more coherent now than it has in past years. Mm -hmm. And I it's interesting, it's like mixing all those different um, disciplines together too, like the science with the art and um, in film too, just for like that entertainment side of it. Yeah, well, you know, plants, um, if there were no plants, there would be no humans. Mm -hmm. And um, there would, and if there were no bacteria and mycorrhizal life, there would be no plants. So, um, if you look at this planet, we we have the audacity to say that humans are at the top of the chain, but really, what's driving the whole thing is plants. Mm -hmm. And um, this planet is a planet of plants. And we disregard that at our peril. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like um, the older one gets, perhaps, the more one thinks about the big picture and the less one is engaged with the personal and the more with the universal. Got you. Gotcha. Uh, um, for me, plants are where it is. So. Uh -huh. Okay, that that was actually very deep. <laughs> I'm, here I'm here trying to process. Uh, well, uh, this is actually so. Speaking of this, I don't know even know where this is going to go, but uh, I engage a lot with like North American, um, specifically American culture online uh, through social media, and. Uh, you know, I've seen a lot of Americans talk about wanting to move to Canada um, as things started to go a certain direction. Who actually did it uh, back in the day with, with the war? Um, how do you feel like we're going, do you feel like that's part of the issue we have just in general with the society that maybe we're not seeing the bigger picture of, of what our actions are causing? Yeah, I think a lot of people are really caught up in the short term. Okay. Um, you know, people 
politically people get upset about the end of big oil, for example. And, um, but that's like two generations worth of jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Versus um, however many hundreds of thousands of years that the planet might continue to survive. I feel like ultimately the planet is still going to be here no matter what we do to it. Mm-hmm. But I really hate the idea that we would destroy the homes of so many other beings on our way out. Got you. And I, you know, I mean everything from the bacteria and the mycorrhizal life to the seeds to the plants to the birds to the bugs to um, it. I think that it's very short, and I, I don't want to dismiss in any way the, the, the challenges that, that lie ahead as people have to change their trades and develop their skills in another direction. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one thing about life is that it never stays still. Things are always in motion. Mm-hmm. And we always learn new things and we learn to adapt. And um, the every it's in the nature of all living things to migrate and move. And, um, you know, sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a terrible thing. I mean, I, as, a, as someone descended from settlers, mm-hmm. um, I fully acknowledge the presumption that I have in talking about, you know, migration and how all things migrate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, th- I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a factor of all things in the universe, living and not living, that there is motion. Mm-hmm. And um, to try to um, stop a freight train that's coming towards you, um, you know, sometimes you just have to get out of the way, right? Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and go down the track 10 miles and, and start building a, a track that's going to curve off. So, you know, mm-hmm. you, don't sl- you don't stop it by standing in front of it and saying, stop. You, you build a spur right. that slopes upwards. <laughs> so it's going to come to the stop on its own. Yeah. And, um, and I think that, that if if we could take the longer view and think about our children's children and um, what we would like to imagine the earth to offer um, five decades from now or 10 decades from now, um, we need to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh... Yeah, make make um, it's it's funny. Before COVID hit, like that seemed like we were that was going to be our focus. Uh, in a lot of ways, seemed like the world was starting to finally, you know, with Greta Thunberg, um, really doing a lot there. It just it, it, then this this thing happened and then took us on another path. But uh, yeah, it's that's interesting. 
you know, for thinking about that. For years, I was on the um, faculty bargaining team with the university. Mm-hmm. And um, through maybe five or six bargaining periods, I, I don't remember. Um, and I can remember often going away from a day at the table thinking, wow, they're never going to come up with the counter to this reality only to go back the next day and be shocked out of my shoes by some response that seemed like it was coming from outer left field. But, you know, I guess being continuously surprised by what people came up with when you thought um, only three options could happen and number seven option happened. Ah, okay. And, and so you would be surprised and I, I would think, whoa, I didn't see that coming. And then um, you'd go back and sort of try to anticipate all of the possible responses that might come back to a certain position. And um, invariably they would come up with often, well, often it was what you predicted they were gonna come up with. And sometimes you could kind of lead them along to actually come into that thing, which you then had the counter argument for. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the time, they just come up with something out of left field that nobody saw coming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's no different from life. That's like COVID. Um, that's, and if you look back in history, you know, the, the Spanish flu, which originated in chickens in Kansas, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, the bubonic plague, um, asteroids hitting the earth all that kind of stuff is not stuff that people predicted or planned for Mm. although you think we'd be able to we should have seen this coming we should have seen the pandemic coming for sure for sure yeah Uh, uh, you know what and I from what I've heard um, with some of the the uh, mock pandemic drills that they were doing you know a year or two years before all of this I think in some way they did but maybe their optimistic mind wouldn't allow them to believe it could actually happen (laughs) but um yeah yeah I think the people who are anticipating it had a pretty clear idea what was going to happen but what they didn't anticipate was what humankind's response to it was going to be You know, the large, the enormous percentage of people who just deny that it's happening or, um, you know, refuse to wear masks because it's taking away their freedom somehow. You know, wearing a seatbelt takes away your freedom, but we all knuckle down and do it. Right. So they're, um, you know, I guess wearing a seatbelt takes away your freedom from being killed in a car accident. And it also takes away your freedom from costing the healthcare system untold millions of dollars trying to patch you back up, which mm-hmm. could have all been avoided if you'd worn the seatbelt in the first place. Right. And the mask debate to me is exactly like that. Well, you know, if you want to help the medical system, put on your darn mask. Yeah. <laughs> Observe those distances. <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> It's not that difficult. <laughs> it's not that tricky, you know. <laughs> so, 
Sorry, anti mask is listening, but yeah, sorry, you guys gotta suck it up and get over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, I was gonna ask you what challenge you have in your creative pursuit, but it sounds like you're more interested in the challenges of the human experience than so much that. Yeah, I, you know, uh, the pandemic is an introvert's dream situation. I know. I am in my studio all day long, every day, you know, with occasional Zoom meetings mm-hmm. and venturing out once a week for groceries or something. Um, I really miss my kids, whom I haven't seen in more than a year because they live in Ontario and Montreal. And um, my son is a paramedic in Ontario and his partner is a respiratory therapist. Oh, wow. So I, my mind really can't go to the possibilities. Yes. And the same with my daughter in Montreal. You know, she and her partner are living a very careful and safe life, but, you know, they're in Montreal. Right. So um, there are a lot of there are a lot of aspects of the pandemic where I can't really let my imagination go because I worry for my kids in every second if I allow myself to think about it. But um, in other regards, it's been a wonderful window to sort of observe people and people responding and um, and to have really long interrupted time in the studio where um, one part of me asks, what's the point in making another useless object? But on the other hand, I'm using up um, materials that are already here. The cloth that I dye and print on is like found old linen tablecloths that have been discarded because they're stained and they're worn and they're torn. So um, I'm I'm recycling stuff that's already been used and dumped. Right. That um, that to me carries um, the imprint of a human experience. You know the way nothing is, does that more than napkins, where you know people are wadding them in their laps and wiping their mouths and crying into them and. Mm. Um, you know, rubbing kids' spills off, and you know they're they have they're very lived objects, and the same goes for tablecloths and that kind of stuff. So, um, so I figure that at this point I'm doing it for my own entertainment. Um, hopefully, it finds an audience. I haven't really figured out the audience aspect very well. Mm. Um, I. For years, I made really big work because I wanted to see how it would look that big. And then I realized that what I really wanted was to imagine my work living with people, mm-hmm. sort of you know, enriching their lives in somehow. And um, nobody is ever going to have a 12-foot by 30-foot textile installation <laughs> on their wall. I mean, it's right. got a wall that size. <laughs> and if you did... You could think of a whole lot of other stuff you might want to do with it. (laughs) So I started making smaller stuff that I thought could really live in people's lives. 
and working in, I've always worked in series so it wasn't that hard and you know they could be grouped together to make a large statement but they each could be its own entity as well gotcha. um, and it just it I think the making gives one time to process what is going on around us and try to figure out some way to you know contribute in some positive way regardless of what's happening what can you do that's you know that might be helpful yeah true cool and if there you've you have an interesting perspective because you've been um you've taught as well as made uh so what uh, kind of advice would you give an artist that's starting out looking to pursue a career as a craft person or an artist? Go for it and don't pull your punches. Mm. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of pleasant work out there and there's a lot of really competent work out there. Um, and a lot, and all of that work has a role to play in enhancing people's lives or helping them think better or helping the maker process ideas. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I think we all want to make the work that inserts itself into someone else's awareness so that they just can't let it go and they keep cycling back and thinking about it. Yes. I mean, to use the terrible word colonize, which has all kinds of really <laughs> bad associations now. Um, I think we all aspire to make work that colonizes someone else's imagination and changes them in some way or mm -hmm. gives them new ideas in some way or shifts perspective in some way. Mm -hmm. And you don't do that by pulling your punches or by making work that you think is good or you just have to go out the end of that plank and, you know, that place where it's risky and you don't know whether it's working or not, but you're totally in the work and you're just going to follow the thought through its, to its logical conclusion. Yeah. Um, in my observations over decades of teaching and also having most of my friends who are also artists and myself, that walking the plank work is the work that um, really survives. Gotcha. That makes an impact on, on a viewer. So yeah, take risks, don't pull your punches and go for it. And don't do it halfway, because there's a lot of half milers out there. <laughs> oh. Stop, stop, uh, <laughs> stop lecturing me, please. <laughs> that doesn't mean you have to do that and nothing but that, because we all have to eat, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. How are you going to eat? But then in your creative time, go for it. Mm, yes. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, I think we can all... Um, stand to be reminded of that from from time to time stop being so scared just do it just do it yeah if it doesn't work so what <laughs> so what <laughs> <You know? laughs> so uh how do 
people find you online or even in person if you have any gallery representation i mean soon as the places open up if they if they are going to open up <laughs> i don't have any gallery representation right now i've been thinking okay. about that um and and this whole covert thing has been an opportunity to sort of think about where i position myself now now, now that i'm no longer teaching and i do have more time to think about that kind of stuff um my website is www.francisdorsey.com and um, it's being revised. I, I have to say I'm not that interested in the website, but um, it's being re it's being improved and updated as we speak um, to reflect, um, you know, like the past five or six years, I, I basically, haven't looked at it. And then when when this crap pays me and um, there's an exhibition at Acadia called Alone that is just about to open and that's going to be a virtual exhibition. And, um, and I'm doing a workshop at the Mount in February and all of those are digital. So I've become really aware of the failures of the website mm. and how, um, you know, I'm really making it difficult for people to contact me <laughs> or look at the work. Mm -hmm. And that's not my intention. So um, so the website is probably the the, the easiest fix. And, and perhaps in the future, there will be a gallery as well. Cool. Sounds good. So Francis Dorsey, thank you very much for coming on our page. Me. It's been a pleasure and I definitely learned some stuff. And <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been so interesting to talk to you and to actually, I've watched some of, or listened to some of the podcasts. So it's very exciting to actually be in one. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to our special Craft Page Me series. Thank you to Lengi Beats for the theme music. You can find them on YouTube. Just search L-A-N-G-I Beats. And thanks again to Craft Nova Scotia for making this possible and Arts Nova Scotia for the support. If you got anything out of this, please rate, review, or leave a comment on whatever platform that you're listening. You can find out more about ArtPaysMe at ArtPaysMe.com or you can hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Clubhouse. I'm at ArtPaysMe on all of those platforms. And with that, we're out. See you next time. Peace.